We are on our last sermon in the book of Revelation series, and it's the last two chapters, the greatest chapters, I believe, of the book of Revelations, chapter 21 and 22. But before we get there, I'm going to play you a series of pictures, and here's what I want you to do. As you sit in your seat, and these pictures are going to go by, I want you to ask yourself which images that you see flashed up here picture how you picture heaven. Because I think, personally, we don't really picture heaven the right way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take some time, and just in your mind, right now, before we see the pictures, close your eyes for a second and think of, when I say the word heaven, what comes into your mind. Okay, now open them and watch the slides. All right, now, I'm leaving it on this last picture for a reason. I want to make a comment on this picture. I want you to look, gaze deep into that picture. This picture was painted by a woman who claims as a little girl had visions and visits with Jesus. Her name is Akane Kramerick, and she began telling her family about seeing visions at the age of four. One day, a cane was staring off into space with a smile on her face and a twinkle in her eye. Asked what she's doing by her parents, she simply answered, I was with God again. And he told me to pray continually. He showed me where he lived. I was climbing transparent stairs. Underneath, I saw gushing waterfalls, and as I was approaching him, his body was pure and intense light. What impressed me the most was his hands. They were gigantic. I saw no bones or veins, no skin or blood, but maps and events. Then he told me to memorize thousands upon thousands of wisdom words on a scroll that did not look like paper, but more like intense light. And in a few seconds, I got somehow filled up. From now on, I will get up early to paint. I hope one day I'll be able to paint what I was shown. When she was older, this was her painting of Jesus that she saw. She believes this is what he looks like, and specifically as he contemplated making the earth. For me personally, 
As I look at that picture, it brings up a lot of questions. And I believe it feeds into a massive misconception we've been led to believe about heaven. Like when I look at that picture, I ask this question, is being in heaven nothing but floating in outer space? Is that what it is? Was Jesus' home somewhere near the Crab Nebula in eternity past? Is that where he hung out? Why does he look like a 1970s Andy Gibb? That's my question. If you've ever seen Andy Gibb, that's him right there. Is this what we're supposed to be looking forward to? Floating in the blueness of eternal sky? If it is, can I be honest with you? I don't want to go. Ooh, did he say that? A lot of people, I think, have been taught that this is what heaven is to be. A realm of sky, clouds, harps, and nothing to do but float and dream. But this isn't the heaven in the Bible. Did you know that? Heaven, as Mike Whitmer writes and Belinda Carlisle sings, is a place on earth. The title for my sermon is Heaven is Green. That's the title. The reason why is because eternity is not going to be spent way beyond the blue. Did you ever play that song? Way beyond the blue. You know, like, oh, hey, way beyond the blue. Or when the rolls call up yonder, I'll be there. The roll is going to be called down here, where the grass is green, where the black soil grows crops that feed us, and where the rock is still hard. This is where God is going to dwell with His people on earth. Go to Revelations 21 and 22, the very last two chapters in your Bible. I want to read the first 14 verses of Revelations 21, and then we will begin our discussion. As you turn there, I'd like to pray. Father, thank You for this book. Thank You for promises that are hard to fathom. Really, they're beyond us to fathom. Thank You, God, though, for the truth that this is where we will dwell forever. We love you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 21. Remember, we had a great white throne judgment. All of those things that were wicked and tainted and rotten were thrown into the lake of fire. And then here we have verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I'll say that word again, earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men. He will live with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down. For these words, they're trustworthy. They're true. He said to me, it is done, because I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But to the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, 
Their place will be in a fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He carried me away into the Spirit to a mountain, great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three in the north, three in the south, three in the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Very concrete, actually. You can touch walls. There's a north, there's a south, there's an east, there's a west. When I'm with a family... And as we sit next to a grave and a loved one who is getting ready to be lowered down in their coffin into six feet of dirt, verses 1 through 7 is a verse, a passage I always share about how there will be no more tears, no more crying, no more mourning, because those promises are overwhelming. It's funny though, when you read them, it seems like they're meant for someplace else, someplace up, up and away, not down here, because wow, this earth is where it is painful to live. This is where we cry. This is where we mourn. But did you know that's really not what Scripture says? This earth is where joy will be felt to the fullness, abundantly. But why is it hard for us to believe that? I'm going to give you a quick buffer course on classical philosophy, and I want to start with a guy by the name of Plato. You know the guy that you go to his second-hand store and you get all these nice clothes, Plato's Closet? Did you ever go there? The guys probably have no idea what I'm talking about. All right, so for the guys, Plato's that stuff you use in your hands and you make balls and you throw them at your kids. Now, Plato is a classical Greek philosopher. He lived around 325 B.C. And he liked to think. And to me, his thinking has poisoned us. It's poisoned us. His thinking is called dualism. And to me, it's distorted our view of what true heaven is all about. Plato liked to speculate, but he didn't have the Bible. Did you know he did not have the Bible? But he just used his imagination, and people took him as if he's almost God. What he did is he came up with this system of understanding called a theory of forms. What he was trying to do is trying to distinguish what is good and what is bad, placing value on good things and placing values on bad things. Just who gave him the right? I don't know, because he was bald. I don't know why. We still think he's smart. I don't know why. So here's what he did. He drew this line, this imaginary line. And on this imaginary line, he separated good, everything on the top, and bad, bad, everything on the bottom. And the reason why it's dualistic is because things on the top or the above ideal have corresponding lower forms of that ideal. Things on the top are immaterial. They're things of the mind are ethereal. That means there's no real substance. They're floating. It's, uh, it involves logic, reason, intuition, and timelessness. There's no time. But the mirrored things are corrupted. And they usually are, are outlined in material substance, the body, Matter, senses, feelings, 
temporary things, things that fade away. And people still, believe it or not, buy this. For instance, here's what Plato would say. You see this ball, this Michigan State ball, see how it's round? This is the corruptible, lowercase thing on the ideal of roundness. And this is just a manifestation of roundness. You could say, look at my face. It's beautiful. It's just a form of beauty. See, but it's not the ultimate beauty. This is his theory of forms. You have the above ideal roundness, and what roundness is, and the corrupted Michigan State, Jared, of material roundness. If it was red and gray, it would be much closer to the ideal. You get the point? See the idea? You're saying, so what does this have to do with anything? Believe it or not, Plato's thinking has invaded, corroded our view of heaven. It's corroded it. And there are a lot of people that don't want to go there. I know some people that wake up in hot sweat saying, ah, I have to live forever? Did you know you already are living forever, by the way? You're not bored. How has it corroded it? Well, there's this follower of Plato, and he's a theologian named Origen. Look at what he says. Watch how this works in his language. Go ahead. He says, the saints, and he's talking about heaven, the saints may begin in paradise. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross and one of the uh, people on the cross, the criminals, said, hey, don't talk bad about him. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And paradise is the idea of, you know, you can eat apples, walk around in your two feet, but keep reading. Paradise, which is someplace situated on earth, they may ascend through increasing knowledge and wisdom to the region of the air, passing through the planetary realm, the visible heavens, until they arrive at the invisible heaven, where the mind feasts eternally on the contemplation and understanding of God. Notice what he says about heaven. Two points. Number one, to him, the highest form of life is the invisible realm. Sure, we'll start off at paradise, eating apples and walking in the sunlight, but eventually we will climb to the higher planes of invisible nothingness. That's the height. Secondly, the goal is to contemplate God. Not experience Him, but to contemplate Him. To think about Him. What's funny is, you know most people who write our devotional studies are guys that like to sit in the library and read for hours and hours. So we think, man, the holiest person is the one who sits in his study for 12 hours a day and just contemplates. Is that really holiness? Or is that just what those guys like to do? See, this whole idea of Plato's dualism has got us to think that holiness is me ascending in my mind to a higher plane where I, I float. I believe many people think this is what heaven is like, a realm of higher thought reached through contemplative experiences. And so when we hear that heaven is a place on earth, it does not compute because I think we've been taught that eating a good steak, driving a fast car, I saw a lot of you laugh. I, we're still going to have machines in heaven. Why not? Framing a house, running through a sprinkler, even skiing down a mountain will not be in heaven. It can't be because it's not contemplative. Those things are too human. They're too material. Whereas really holy things are associated with the higher plane of eternal contemplation clouds, angels flying, a white-robed Jesus who looks like Andy Gibb. Now that's heaven. 
This platonic otherness concerning heaven pervades our thinking. We think real time with God must have some sort of a static meditative experience. True prayer should cause a leaping of the heart. When I pray, I better be caught up. When I sing at church, I need to be in the moment. Raise hand and grimace. It's almost like I'm in pain. But the more painful the worship, the more godly it is. Have you ever seen that? <laughs> Amen. Why do you got to grimace like? I don't know. I know some people express that. Chris, don't mock them. I'm not. But I think some of this is we think... Yes, I am. I'm sorry. Some of this, some of this, I think, has been foisted on us to believe this stuff. How was your quiet time? Great. Felt like I was caught up in the seventh heaven. I even cried a tear. I'm going to break the bad news to you or the good news to me. I have learned by studying Revelations 21 and 22, heaven is going to be a very human experience. It is going to be lived down here. Down here. Solid. We'll walk on it. Are you mocking Plato? Yeah, the guy wasn't a Christian. Let's stop this nonsense. Let's read what the Bible says. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 21. Revelations 21. I saw, so with my senses, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That word earth in the Greek literally means land. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there's no longer any sea. There's a lot of discussion on what does that mean. Are there not going to be any oceans? Some people say sea is this idea of chaos and all of, in Revelation, the beast came out of the sea and the sea is always turbulent. Always, I don't know what that means. There will be water because you'll see there will be a lot of water. Verse 2, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. It's going to be a city. What's a city? A place full of buildings, people, streets. I believe activity, commerce, trade. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I first have to deal with this issue, though. Look at verse 1. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. What does that mean? Will it just disappear? Will it explode? You know, another big bang? When will this happen? Instead of disappearing, I believe the old earth will be transformed. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. It's a very strange little statement. Verse 11 is talking about the judgment seat, and it talks about this great white throne we talked about last week. It says, I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there is no place for them. So it's the idea that all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes this throne room of God, and everybody's going to go before it. I've been reading, I don't know exactly, but I believe something happens at that time where it's almost like God's going to do some excavation work while he takes everybody off this earth and he's going to transform it before we go back to the earth. But I think two things are going to happen to it. I think in his remodeling work, the first thing he has to do is he has to purge this earth of evil, wickedness, sin, spoiled thorns, and thistles. Go to Second Peter chapter three. Second Peter three, verse ten. 
says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. One Bible teacher says the phrase laid bare means that God's work is not purely destructive, but instead may be understood as a smelting process by which the dross of human sinfulness is burned off. So that laid bare means found or standing the test. The fire of judgment might then be compared to a foundry where metals are melted down and reshaped into useful products. An analogy to this whole idea is, remember the flood? Remember when Moses was put in the ark? When the flood came, did it destroy the earth? Yeah, but the earth remained, right? Without the people that were corrupt. In the same way, this will be a new kind of flood, a flood of fire. I believe we will flee going to the throne room, and in the meantime, God is going to light this place on fire like a smelting process and burn out all of the sin and iniquity. Then at that time, after that, will be the renewal. After the purging, flourishing without the curse can begin. Revelations 22, verse 3 says, No longer will there be any curse. No longer. Hebrews says something interesting. It says God is going to shake the earth one more time. He's going to shake the earth. It's going to just rattle it, kind of like destroy it. And he says this so that, this is Hebrews 12, 26 to 28, says so that the unshakable will remain. He's going to shake the earth. He's going to, I think, transform it. And what's going to be left are those things that will never fade away. Those things will never be destroyed because there will be no corruption There will be no rot underneath the surface anymore. It will stay forever. And another analogy to the transformation process is what happens to the believer. When I believe in Jesus, what 2 Corinthians says is the old is gone and the new is come. But am I gone? I'm still me when, I, when the Holy Spirit comes and lives in me, I'm still me, but I'm a better me. I become the real me, finally. I don't live in lies. I don't live in masks. I don't live in wickedness anymore. I become a better me. The earth will still be the earth. It'll still have rocks, wood, soil, water, birds, lions, lambs, dogs, strawberries, lilacs, lotions, light breezes, jewels, gems, lobsters, limestone, and trees but they will all be better. Some people said, so will my dog still be there? I heard one theologian said, if your dog will make you that much happier in heaven, your little foo-foo or Kevin will make you that much happier in heaven, I don't see why God wouldn't allow him to make it, but I'm sure you're not going to worry about it too much. Some of you dog lovers, yes, I will. You don't know how I love my dog. Wait till you see Jesus. Wait till you see Jesus. You might even kick. No, you won't be. You'll be immortal, so you won't kick your dog anymore. And I don't kick my dog, so don't blame me for that statement. Let's keep going. So the creation will still be, but it will have no more decay, no more groaning, Romans 8 says, no more frustration and bondage, but creation will bloom. Wait till you see what a rose really looks like. 
The stage will be set for the real show God has been intending all along. We'll never be completely satisfied with what was written about heaven because for the most part God has kept the secrets of heaven hidden. C.S. Lewis says, you know, why does a mom hide the chocolate cake during mealtime? Because she wants your kid to eat the Brussels sprouts. Do you get it? Sometimes I think all we, just give me heaven. God's not fully disclosed it. We see through a glass darkly. But there are three things I can definitely say about it from Revelations 21 and 22. Three realities of heaven. Number one, heaven is going to be a place where the Garden of Eden will be completely restored and reversed. Eden will be restored. Listen to Gen- Go to Genesis 2, the very first book of the Bible. Genesis 2, 4 through 14. Listen to how God describes the Garden of Eden. And we'll read what he says in Revelations 22. Genesis 2, 4 through 14. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. It's interesting how it says heavens and earth. Revelations 21, new heavens and new earth. Listen to the first heavens and earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, and no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had sprung up yet, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth. We'll get a lot of shrubs after today. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground, but streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. The Lord God formed, uh, the, Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there's gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is Euphrates. Now let's go to Revelations 22. Verse 1 through 3. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Here's the similarities. There is a river flowing. In Genesis, there are four of them. Here we have the river of life coming from the throne of God, watering the whole land. Secondly, there is a tree of life. In Genesis, it seemed almost singular. Here, it's everywhere. The third thing we can say is verse 3, there's no curse. Genesis 3.22, after Adam and Eve sinned, God put angels to stop them from eating from the tree of life. He wrote, Adam's not allowed to reach out his hand and take the fruit from the tree of life, or else he might live forever. But here, 
In Revelations 22.2, it's loaded, full of fruit, for all the nations to freely take. Eden has been reversed. It's been reversed. I want to point out one more thing too. The garden has matured from a place where there were shrubs and plants and trees and according to Revelations 21 and 22, it's matured into a city. It's grown, grown into a place for two people to be a place where thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people living together. In Genesis, the garden had jewels and gems everywhere. And now those same jewels and gems make up the walls of the city. Look at Revelations 21, verse 10. Revelations 21.10, And He carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Why? Because of 18 and 21. Look at verse 18. Actually, 15 to 17 talks about this gigantic, I mean it's a gigantic city. It's 1,500 miles wide, long, and high. It's a cube. I don't know what that means personally. I do know when Jesus left, he ascended. Maybe I'll be able to ascend up the city. I don't know. Very strange. Verse 18, the wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third Chalcedy, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth crystophrase, the eleventh jacinth, and twelfth amethyst. Notice there's twelve fullness, represent all the gems. Twelve gates of the twelve pearls, each gate was made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was a pure gold like transparent glass. If you notice that the walls will be like a rainbow with all of the glory of God shining through them, Pearls, I, I don't know. I don't understand. Some people say it's all metaphor. You can't take it serious. I, I'm going to take it serious. It's going to be amazing. But if you notice, it's Eden restored, but more beautifully and in constructed ways. It's a city. The gold is, gold is transparent, probably because there's no impurities or blemishes in it. My question is, if there's no impurities or blemishes, will there be bugs and mosquitoes there? I know there will not be roaches there. I guarantee it. Second thing about heaven. Heaven will also be a place where our original calling is finally fulfilled. Where our calling, our purpose, why God designed us and put us in Eden, put Adam and Eve on this earth for, we will fulfill it. J. Richard Middleton says, As image bearers of God... We were created to rule over the animal kingdom and then subdue the earth. The specifics were tending the garden and bringing forth produce from the ground. The Bible ultimately envisions the development of all aspects of culture, technology, and civilization. In short, we are to fill the earth with His divine presence through our giftedness, our skills, and our work. A simple way of saying that is to fill the earth with God's glory, and that's exactly what heaven is about. Revelations 22.3. Look at Revelations 22.3. We'll do this in a number of ways. 22.3 says, 
No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. So we'll glorify God by we will serve him. Second thing, 21-24. Chapter 21-24. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. There will be kings who will rule. That's what verse 5 of 22-5 says. They will reign forever, ever. And then the third thing in verse 24 says, we will bring our splendor into the city. People will bring into the city their splendor. What does that mean? The word splendor comes from the word doxa. You know how we sing doxology? It means bringing praise to God. Other times this word is used, it includes wealth, beauty, talent, brilliance, and genius. And all of that will be used to bring glory to God. So all of our wealth, talent, brilliance, and genius are going to be used to bring praise to God. I think each of us will display our uniqueness before us. could include paintings, songs, sculptures, novels, buildings, red sports cars, airplanes, constructed underground palaces for dwarves, maybe. Tree houses. Some people make new kind of candies, maybe. Willy Wonka kind of candy. And you guys think I'm crazy. Why? We'll make rocket ships. I left out motorcycles. They're a curse. Don't you know they're evil? (laughs) No, you'll have those big fat boy tires on all of them. No, like Batman's motorcycle. That thing that, man, that'll be nice. We'll have all of it and more. So what is your splendor? What is your gift? What is your uniqueness going to be? I was thinking about mine. I'm not sure. Mine are hidden deep underneath thorns and thistles of a lazy man, so I don't know. I'm really good, though, at painting by numbers, so I might be doing that up there. I'm not sure. Whatever it is, whatever it is, I will finally be able to please Him fully because I won't be held back by sin. Just as we haven't really seen a rose yet, I haven't really seen my capabilities yet. What's the ultimate goal of heaven? The third reality. And this third reality, when I read, I read a number of times through Revelation, and then all of a sudden I read it fourth or fifth time and it just struck me. I just don't think we see this as important, but we will see his face. Look at how it's written in Revelations 21.3. It's a great verse. And it's a loud voice of an angel. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now, now the dwelling of God is with men. And He will live with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. It's almost like, now this is it. Now, here it is. The dwelling of God will be with men. It's reiterated in 22 verse 4. Look at 22 verse 4. It's just so simple how it's written, but it's beautiful. Verse 4, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, meaning they're going to be owned by him. They're his. They're his. All through the Bible, if you go all the way back, when the wanderings in the wilderness, you have this temple where God would set up the Holy of Holies and the idea is so he could dwell with his people but they could never see his face. Moses wanted to. 
He could only see him walk the backside of God. He wasn't allowed to see him. But now we are going to see him as he is with our face and we're going to see his face. We're going to see Jesus. A number of writers have said how heaven is reflecting back to the cosmic temple as if it's all pointing back to the Old Testament. The truth is the Old Testament is pointing forward to this. This is what it's all been looking forward to. We get to dwell with God. That's what the Feast of the Tabernacles are. It means to set up tent with God. We will be tabernacling with Him for all eternity. This is what God has always wanted. 21.10 puts it like this, And He carried me away in the Spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God. That's the Shekinah glory. Why? Because His presence is there. Remember in the Old Testament when His glory would shine and that meant He was in the temple? This is saying He's always going to be there. 21.23 says, The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. His presence is there and He shines and brings understanding to everything. And 22.5 says, There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. His presence is always there, filling everything in every way. 1 Corinthians 15 says, After Jesus kills the last enemy, which is death, and I believe that's the thousand-year millennium, then he's going to give it back to the Father, who's going to be all in all. This is his all in all when he dwells with us. What will this be like? This is the part I don't know how to explain. We see through a glass darkly. I think we are so impure because we don't feast on the things of God. We just don't know what he's like because it says, Blessed are the pure, for they will see God. And these broken, soiled bodies, we're never allowed to see him. But we won't have that anymore. But I do know this about him. Here's what I know about him. And this is the best way I can think about it. I know, I know God is better than your best friend. When you go into a house, it's fun. Like it's fun moving in Jared to his house and you're sitting in that breezeway and you just have people sitting there talking and they're your friends and you just, you just get along with them. He's better than your best friend. He's better conversation than your best friend. He is more thrilling to be with than your greatest experience you've ever had in your life. Did you know he made all those thrilling experiences? We almost think that thrilling experiences are separate from him, like those guys that do X game and go down the mountains and they're cool and they don't need God. Wait a minute, who made the mountain? Who made adrenaline? Who made the thrill of gravity pulling you down? God did. Why do you separate yourself from the joy he gave you? Who created sex? I know God is kind. He's kind. He's full of laughter. He's bubbling with joy, Psalm 1611. And he's perfect in every way. And he knows you intimately and he still is for you. Now that's great. God is great and it will be great to always be with him. Mike, that was a great song they played this morning. How great is our God, he's amazing. That's really all I know what to say about heaven because I... I, I see through a glass darkly. But I do have to ask one final question. 
Who gets in? And is the new heaven and new earth open for everyone? In some circles of Christian thought, the phrase in Revelation, go to 21.25. Look at 21.25. It talks about the gates of the city. It says in verse 24 how the nations will stream into it. And in verse 25, on no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. And there's this new belief that that statement, on no day will its gates ever be shut, means everybody can come. Everybody. All people will be saved. God will not exclude anyone. Really? Have you really read Revelation? I don't think that's what that means, that God allows everybody to come in for two simple reasons. The first of all is God will not allow impurity in any way to come into the city. Look at verse 8 of Revelation 21. Just listen to how it's written. Verse 8. Verse 7 says, I will be his God and he will be my son, but, but, wait a minute, you mean there's a group that won't be part of the family of God? Yes, the cowardly, those who shrink back from their faith, the unbelieving, those who don't have faith, the vile, those who enjoy wickedness, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars. Their place will be in a fiery lake of burning sulfur. They're excluded. Look at verse 27 of Revelations 21. 27 says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. If you remember last week, there's a lot of people whose names aren't in there. And then look at Revelations 22.15. 14 says, blessed are those who wash their robes. That means have faith in Christ and have been washed by His blood. Blessed are those that they have the right to eat from the tree of life. They can go through the gates into the city. So they're the ones that get to go through. But, at verse 15, that means outside. Those who don't get to go in are the dogs. Those who practice magic arts, the sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters. Everyone who loves and practices falsehood. It's the same list. It's Revelations 21.8. So there's going to be exclusions. Second thing, God continually offers opportunities to accept His invitation. But there's a condition. And we find it in verse 17 of Revelations 22. You've got to look at this condition closely. Condition means the invitation is not unconditional. Everybody gets in. There's only one group of people that get in. And we find it in 22.17. Let me read it. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. That means come. Come to the feast. Come to Christ. And let him who hears say, Come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. What's the condition? Thirst. Thirst is when you have a lack of something and you want to be filled. What is this thirst? It's a thirst for Christ. I need Him. I, have, I need saving. I have a lack of. And I want Him to fill my life. How do you know that you're thirsty? Man. It's, see how it says, whoever's thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. How do you know you're thirsty? Because you will take that gift. When you're thirsty and I offer you water... 
If you're really thirsty, you're going to take it and guzzle it down. If you are thirsty for Christ, you'll say, what do I need to do to be saved? Believe. How do I do that? Accept Christ in your life. All right, I'll do that. That's a sign you're thirsty for Christ. How do you know you're not thirsty? No, no thanks. I'm full. Maybe later. Maybe later. Let me think more about that water. It looks a little polluted. I'm not sure. I can go get some monster drink somewhere else. I don't need Jesus yet. Let me think about it. need some time. I can handle it on my own. Some of you are simply not thirsty. And if you aren't, you've got to be careful. This book ends very dangerously. Look at verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in the book. If anyone takes away from this book of prophecy, God will take away from his share in the tree of life. What he's saying is this book's serious. It's so serious, don't add to it, don't take away from it. It's so serious, are you going to respond to it or yawn and ignore it? I want to end from a commentary I was reading. The writer's name's Mounts, and listen to what he writes as we close up Revelation. With this, the book of Revelation is complete. God is sovereign, and that is his eternal plan for the human race, and it's going to be carried through. During the interim, there will be hostility and opposition. But what he has decreed must of necessity come to pass. People will be faced with the crucial decision of pledging their allegiance to the beast and hence Satan himself, or to the Lamb. The beast or the Lamb? Those who choose to wear the mark of the beast will ultimately share his fate. The great city of Babylon will fall. Those who choose to follow the Lamb, who bears the mark of redemptive sacrifice, who have their robes clean, will ultimately be brought into eternal fellowship with God in the New Testament. So who are you following? The beast or the Lamb? This is how the book ends, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this book. We thank You, God, that You have afforded us time to try to understand it. I pray, God, for the Holy Spirit now to intercede and take over and bring to our minds what is true and what is dross. Let Him burn it up. Let it fade away. Thank You, God, for the promises that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and we'll get to see God with our very own eyes. We love You, Lord, and in Christ's name we pray.